Tech Talk with Jess Kelly. With VMware. Free your employees to work more securely from anywhere. Visit exertis.ie forward slash VMware. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Tech Talk. Jess Kelly with you here on News Talk. Coming up over the next hour, we'll hear from Swappy about the difference between a second hand and a refurbished device. And Ashton Keenan will talk about the importance of backing content creators and putting your money where your mouth is. As always, you can email the show techtalk at newstalk.com or you'll find me on Twitter at JessKellyNT. Later in the show, we'll also hear from Dyson about the work they're doing to create household robots. But first, as you may be aware, many of the big tech companies such as Apple and Samsung have been making a big effort to be greener. This is why you no longer get the plug in the box when you buy a new iPhone, for example. But you, the consumer, have more environmentally friendly ways to buy tech than ever before. One of the main ways is by purchasing a refurbished device. Swappy is one of the retailers here in Ireland working in this space. And Casper Anderson, the country lead, joins me now. Casper, you're very welcome to the Tech Talk studio. Can you just start by telling us what is Swappy? Yeah, sure. Uh, Swappy buys and sells refurbished iPhones. And I think the best way to explain what that actually means is to explain why Swappy was founded. So uh, our CEO, Sami, uh, actually went online uh, back in 2016 um, and wanted to buy a refurbished iPhone because he thought, you know, it's, it's, it's better for the environment and, and it's cheaper, so why not go for it? Um, and he actually, he, he bought one. The problem was it never arrived. So he actually got scammed for quite a few <sighs> money. So his, uh, his response to that was like, why not create a player in the market that people can trust and, and people can both buy and sell their phones to and can, can function in, in, a, in a manner like any other retailer, basically. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's how we, we were founded. And uh, so refurbished basically means we, we get a ton of uh, broken phones or used phones and we fix them up and then uh, we resell them. Mm-hmm. And there's a few different reasons why buying refurbished is a good thing to do. So there's the environmental side sure. because very often we disregard technology before it's reached its full life cycle. Yeah. It's better for your pocket because they tend to be a bit cheaper. Yeah. Um, and also the technology in these phones, it's not as expiring as quickly as back in the day. You know, the jump between the iPhone 12 and the iPhone 13 isn't as significant as it was back when it was going from the iPhone 4 to the iPhone 5. So there's a lot more road to run with this technology. But the key thing that you said there is, you know, making sure that you're not getting ripped off, making yeah, sure that exactly. a phone is properly refurbished. Mm-hmm. So can you explain to us what the refurbished process is and how I know for sure if I'm buying a refurbished iPhone sure. that the screen's not going to be broken or that the battery won't hold a charge or, you know, all those small uh, little all things. All those small things that mm-hmm. you really want. Um, so any phone that comes in at Swapy goes through a 52-step process. 52? Uh, 52 <laughs> okay. steps. You know, we want to make sure everything is working as yeah. it should. Uh, so that's involving around hardware check. Does the camera work? Does the charging port work? Does the home button on the iPhone 8 work? Uh, all of these hardware checks, it goes through a software check. Uh, we clean it uh, and we make sure that everything is running. We make sure to check the battery, that it's okay to to run a full day. Um, and then we, we sell it after that. I think the 
what you need to be aware of as well is that with players like Swappy, for example, is that you do get the same consumer protection as you do anywhere else. So your warranty so and all that sort of stuff. So you still get the warranty, you still get the return rights and everything else like that. Because we know that you know, buying a refurbished iPhone can, can be daunting mm-hmm. as just the fact that it's refurbished. But then we are also selling it online, which you know, is another barrier that you really have to overcome. Um, and we know in Ireland specifically, uh, the e-com penetration rate, so how many people shop online versus the total share, is actually a little bit lower than some of the some of the European counterparts. So we know the, that we really have to make sure that everything is working as mm-hmm. as it should, and and we really want to meet the Irish consumer. Hence the the pop up store that we were going to open up on Monday. Yeah, I walked by it the other day. It looks great. It looks like Thank a you. fun space, and there was nothing in it at that stage. It was just the exterior, but it looked great. So I'm excited to see it in person. But you mentioned there about the hardware check, so the 52 um, step process the other concern that people have when it comes to buying refurbished devices is the software life cycle yeah so if i buy an iphone 8 for example how many updates in terms of software and in terms of security and i know you don't set these parameters (laughs) but that is a consideration because even if something is 200 euro 200 euro is still a lot of money if a phone isn't going to last you more than 12 months you know what i mean that's completely fair, uh, and we think, uh, as you mentioned, like we we are unfortunately not in mm-hmm. in control ourselves. We would love to be, but uh, uh, we're not. I think what you know, what we do at Swappy is we obviously make sure that we don't sell any phones that already have expired. Yes, and we also want to always make sure that we are on top of it. So that's the reason for if you go and you want to buy a phone, we only sell down to an iPhone seven. Like okay. so iPhone 7 is is the lowest tier model that that you can get from us. Mm-hmm. And that's because it's the only one that that is working with the with the current software. And we always make sure to check up on this uh and make sure we don't sell any of those phones that don't follow up. Mm-hmm. Um as you said, right? If you're going for an for an for an iPhone 8 now, like how long do you know that it's going to last? Uh unfortunately, uh we don't know either. It comes down to the to 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 Apple about when, how long they're going to that a software live, um, but what we generally see, and and the reason why I also use an iPhone is that iPhones have uh, tend to have a longer longevity in its software. And mm-hmm. um, the other thing that I think people are wary of, and there's a, a distinction between buying a refurbished phone mm-hmm. versus a phone on a second-hand market place where that is somewhere like Facebook Market or any of those outlets yeah. that have been through the mill. So, for example, if I drop my iPhone now and I go and I get the screen repaired in an unofficial repair outlet, yeah. and then I sell that iPhone on a third market uh, place, the person buying it has no comeback. They have no guarantee. They have no verification that the parts used are authentic parts that are suitable for the phone. And obviously, I'm not getting the warranty that you mentioned. Yeah. Is articulating that message to the consumer important and is that part of your goal so that people understand that buying a second-hand phone is different to buying a refurbished device? Yeah, I think in in, in Ireland specifically, um, the knowledge of what refurbished versus second-hand, mm. that knowledge is quite big compared to some of the other European markets that we, that we operate in. Uh, I think... 
that's one of the main reasons why we're opening this pop-up store. Or I not I think I know that that's mm-hmm. one of the reasons why we're opening up this pop-up store is to show these phones. Yeah. Because I, I think when you go in and you want to buy a phone online, mm-hmm. uh, specifically an, a refurbished phone, you typically have a different set of categories you can choose from in terms of what condition they're in. Uh, these condition categories are has nothing to do with the performance itself. Yeah. Uh, it's strictly due to the cosmetic look of them. And I think that's the key where people need to... That That's really why we want to open the pop-up store so people can come down and see what does these... What does this cosmetic condition actually mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, and actually explain this to them that it's pure perform pure performance is the exact same thing as new. There is no difference here. That it's only the co- cosmetic condition and then it's about understanding that. Yeah. Because I think saying what a phone looks like and showing pictures is not never as good as holding the phone in your hand yourself. 100%. Uh, you mentioned the pop-up shop there. So it's um, being it's located on 32 Exchequer Street here in Dublin. Uh, it opens on Monday, uh, Monday coming, and it'll stay open until the 27th of June. Uh, it'll be open Monday to Saturday, 10 until 6, and on a Sunday from 10 until 3. Um, one of the other things that I'm interested in, just because I'm a bit of a nerd, is how businesses such as Swappy make money. Yeah. Because doing things for the environment, doing things to offer better value for consumers, they don't instantly sound like money spinners in terms of a business plan and, you know, being successful. Yeah. So how do you ensure that Swappy is a business and you all still remain employed? That's a very good question. <laughs> uh, and I will I will answer, answer it as much as I can. Uh, the base business is is very simple. So we buy phones from a consumer and then we fix it and then we sell it at a slightly higher price than what we bought it for. Uh, that's essentially how the business works. And I think, you know, great tech really shouldn't cost us the earth in terms of the environment. We should be able to get great tech without having to pay for it from an environmental perspective. And sustainability doesn't need to be expensive Right, because when, when, when people talk about a sustainable option when it comes to something like food, for example, they typically come at a higher price tag than you know, conventional food. And I don't believe that should be the case. And that's one of the reasons why we're why this works so well is because it's it's a cheap alternative and it's more sustainable. And I think this is something to do with the entire circular economy that is is really on the rise right now and people are getting their eyes open for because circular economy for Swapi and for me, yes, has something to do with iPhones, but it's certainly also something that can be applied to the furniture industry. It can be applied to clothing. It can mm-hmm. be applied to everything that we really use because I think we have this, we, we, we don't tend to extend the life cycle or really fully utilize the life cycle of products that we use. Mm-hmm. For the countries that you operate in, is there a distinction between the consumers who buy from Swappy because of environmental reasons versus the people who buy for financial reasons? Is there a clear distinction there at all? It's not as clear as you might think. Okay. There are definitely some distinction, uh, but I can take Ireland as an example. I think in Ireland, you know, we've there's there's been this housing crisis going mm-hmm. on in Dublin for quite a while, and now with the inflation rate going up and we we see the petrol prices going up there's certainly an aspect of it be, 
with it being cheaper, right? Because right now, where you can save money is a good way. Totally. Um, the environmental impact is something that we still need to educate people about. Because when I say that buying a refurbished iPhone is environmentally friendly, what does that actually mean? And I think when we look at technology and consumer electronics, when you look at a new iPhone in the store or a new laptop, you don't realize how big that carbon footprint is. Mm -hmm. When you start thinking about all of the mining that has to be done to get the precious minerals, they're going to be shipped to a factory. That factory has to produce these phones and that factory then has to ship it to the consumer. And... You know, on average for an iPhone, 78% of the carbon emissions happens in the production of it. Oof. So as soon as you buy it, yeah, like the, the way you use the phone leaves a minimal footprint compared to what you actually, what it actually have made already. Yeah. So simply by extending the life cycle, you're really able to reduce a lot of emissions. Um that's the one part. And then I think for electronics specifically, you have the the whole precious metals aspect. Yeah. Which is, first of all, there's not a lot of it. Mm -hmm. uh, second of all, even though electronic waste is around 2% of all waste in the world, it accounts for 70% of all hazardous waste. So okay, that's it's, interesting. It's, it's incredibly, it can be incredibly toxic. Yeah. And that's why it really matters that we re recycle and we upcycle and we continue to use the product for as long as we can. Do you, um, like, do people get in touch with you offering their technology or how do you source the phones that you buy that you then refurb and resell? Yeah, so we source it from from a bunch of different partners and, and places, but the average cons consumer can easily sell a phone to us. And okay. that's also something that we want to emphasize in the, in the pop-up store. Uh, and so I will be there the first week so you can come down and ask me any questions. Ask them all the questions. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but what we, what the pop-up store really enables is for you to also relatively easily sell your phone there as well. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, how much you can get out of it varies. Uh, but the whole process is much more simple than you expect. Uh, you go in, you fill out a five-question uh, five question questionnaire, mm -hmm. and then you uh, print out a shipping label, and then DHL will come by and pick it up, and then... Uh, you get your money uh, within one to five business days. Yeah, I'm on the website and the website is very clear, very clean, very easy to understand. It's swappy.com. That's swappy, S-W-A-P-P-I-E.com. Uh, all of the information is there. I do think a lot of people are wising up to the fact that they don't need to have the latest device. And I think the technology that we're seeing, as I mentioned before, yes, it's incredible innovation, but it's not as big a leap as it had as it was a number of years ago. No. Like we have all the megapixels we could possibly fit onto a smartphone from like the iPhone 10 onwards. It's incredible the technology that's available. So I do think being a bit more mindful when it comes to what you're buying is not only good for the planet but good for your pocket as well. Um, and if you are in Dublin, you can swing by the uh, pop-up store. As I said, it's open from Monday. Um, I wish you every success. Thank you Thank so you much so for coming much. in and uh, hopefully we'll see you again soon. Yeah, thank you so much. Coming up next here on News Talk, we're happy to pay for Netflix and for Spotify, but do you back anyone on Patreon? Tech Talk on News Talk with VMware. Free your employees to work more securely from anywhere. Visit exertus.ie forward slash VMware.
Welcome back to Tech Talk. This is Jess Kelly with you here on News Talk. Tech Talk at Newstalk.com is the email address if you'd like to get in touch or you'll find me on Twitter at Jess Kelly NT. Now, the notion of paying for content is still relatively new. When I was a teenager, music and TV shows were downloaded illegally online. And up until recently, pretty relatively recently, in fact, a content paywall was an absolute exception. But as we know, things have changed. We now have subscriptions for entertainment. But do you back anyone on Patreon? Be that a journalist, a podcaster, a comedian, whatever. Ashley Keenan is a journalist and host of Private Education, the podcast, and she joins me now. Ashley, when and why did you sort of venture into the world of Patreon? Yeah, so I worked in magazines for 13, nearly 14 years, and when the magazine that I was the editor of shut down um, five years ago, I went freelance and I was, you know, there was a temptation because I I had written about beauty and fashion. There was a temptation to go the kind of influencer route and start taking sponsored content. And I, I honestly, I, I don't even to this day, still don't know why I couldn't, but it just didn't sit right with me as a journalist to take money for um, my opinion on things, even if it, even if I knew it to be genuine. So I decided not to go that route and therefore, you know, uh, I still needed to to make a living. I still needed to earn. So I decided, uh, I, I, you know, like many people now, I kind of have five or six different income streams. Um, one of which and kind of my main one at the moment is my Patreon, which essentially is just the content I would have been creating when I worked with magazines um, just for people who follow me or or like the way I write or, you know, followed me maybe back from those days when I did write in the magazines um, who still want to keep in touch and, get, and still want to, you know, consume my content, I suppose. So I set that up three years ago and um, it's, it is my, my biggest, my main form of income at the moment, um, along with my podcast and um, other freelance gigs that I have with newspapers and magazines. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting sort of dilemma, I suppose, because you could absolutely have gone down the influencer route and, you know, anyone who follows you on Instagram will see that all the big brands are sending you products, but you never do the spawn con thing. And I assume that is because you want to be able to say, do you know what, this wasn't actually great. And yes, it's from a big brand. And as much as the packaging is beautiful or as much as the marketing is great, it's not that good. You wanted to have that level of integrity. Yeah, I wanted to have the freedom to do that. But I mean, that's not to say because I really respect so many influencers who are incredibly authentic and honest mm-hmm. with their audience. It's, it's It wasn't so much that as at the time I I was working, I was freelancing for magazines. I still write for the Irish Times and Irish Country Magazine. And I was conscious that the revenue stream for advertising that was going to those publications would be diluted if I was to step in as kind of a middleman and say to a, a beauty brand or, or a fashion brand or whatever it might be, well, yeah, I'll I'll do some sponsor content on my Instagram, you know? So I, I was conscious that those gigs were my bread and butter and I didn't want to mess with that in any mm. way. Um, so that that played a part as well. Um, and then I just, I, I did genuinely just feel like, you know, my integrity was very important and I wanted to kind of keep that as much as I possibly could. Um, now I still to be completely honest I feel like had I gone the influencer route I might be in a better position now than I currently am because it is incredibly difficult to make a living as a freelancer when you don't take sponsored content or don't do ads or anything like that so it, you know there has been there have been good elements and there have also been you know negative in a way 
Um, but I know I, I'm really happy with my decision and I can, you know, hand my heart, say that everything that I put out there is honest and everything I write about in the publications I write for and my Patreon included is all completely unbiased and my own opinion. And there's no outside influence um, from, from any brand. So let's talk a little bit about the, the business side of the Patreon then for, from your business's point of view. So you are a journalist and as we mentioned, you do, you wear a number of different hats. But when it comes to your Patreon, you write beautiful essays, but you also do sort of unfiltered beauty product reviews and other types of reviews. How much do you set your Patreon memberships for? And how did you settle on the, the price structure that you've gone with? Yeah, so I have, um, when you sign up for Patreon, you can, um, there's a couple of different packages, I suppose, that you can, you can go for. Um, one requires payment, as in one requires an, an, an investment from you kind of upfront, and then the other um, is, a, is a free model, I suppose. I decided I wanted to have multiple tiers of support, and that's how they, that's how they structure it. So I basically wanted a level of support that a student or you know, someone who's out of work or someone who is struggling for money at, at whatever particular time, I wanted to have a tier that they could afford. So mm-hmm. I set that at two euro. Then I set up a four euro tier for someone who wanted to give a bit of additional support, someone maybe who is employed. And then I set up a 10 euro tier, which is like a premium tier um, for people who are, you know, happy and willing and able to support a creator for 10 euro per month um, which I would you know it's a very privileged position to be able to do that but there are people out there who really really value good content and they really value um, experience and ability and that sort of thing and um, they are willing to you know spend 10 euro a month to consume the content and obviously at those different tiers I provide different levels of service so for the two euro tier you get four pieces a month and then for the four euro tier you get a little bit more and then for the 10 euro tier there's kind of different perks and benefits that you get if that's your um, tier of choice mm. so uh, and every every Patreon creator is different I know there's people who just have the one tier for maybe six euro um, so it really it, it kind of it came down to me knowing my own audience and making wanting to make sure that everyone could afford a level of um, investment in the content that I create. Yeah, it's funny. I think a few years ago, the notion of, you know, paying for stuff like this might have seemed strange. But now in a, in a, in a time when there's so much noise online, there are a number of people who I subscribe to on Patreon. Firstly, because I like their style of writing. Secondly, I want to support them. But also, I just know that I can go into their little their, their little sort of cubbyhole of the internet and not feel rage. There's a nice community, like the comment section on someone's Patreon is always lovely. Is that something that you're aware of as well, that, you know, you're kind of giving people direct access to you rather than having to scrape through layers of junk to get to where you are? Yeah, 100%. And I, I think, I mean, the only place I really promote my Patreon is on, is on my own Instagram page where I have a relatively small following by comparison to some, um, you know, some influencers or some kind of other journalists and things. But I think I do have a really loyal um, kind of community on Patreon. Mm-hmm. And that is absolutely a part of it is when I write something, I have the confidence to be more honest and be more you know, give my opinion more. I, I like, I'm terrified now when I go onto Twitter, like even the most innocuous tweet can result in hundreds of replies, 
you know, of negativity or of trolling or of anger or rage or whatever it is, you know, there's, there's very little nuance to be found anymore on Twitter. And so I find that kind of a bit of a, it's a bit of a fractious place to be. Whereas on my Patreon, I know that the people that are there and the people that are reading and the people that are supporting me have actually parted with money to consume my content. So generally I can take it that, not that they all agree with everything I say, but I can take it that they are there to support me and they kind of generally respect what I might have to say about something. So if they don't, that's absolutely fine. And I'm always open to you know comments and criticism and feedback. But in general, it feels like a safe space. And the comment section, you're right, is very much a community feel and people are very kind and people are very encouraging. Um, so that's definitely something I had in mind when I decided to set it up. You also have your uh, podcast, Private Education. Are there other streams within your business? So so aside from your Patreon and your podcast that you engage with your audience and your audience can engage with you? And um, Not in a, in a paid way. I mean, the only other way, I suppose, via my Patreon um, and via my podcast, people do get in touch a lot. Um, I do get some kind of feedback and comments and things into my personal Instagram about the things that I write. And I have a beauty column in Irish Country magazine every every issue, which I love. And there's a very, you know, very loyal readership there. Um, but for the most part, um, no, it's my my Patreon would be the place where people are like I'd start to recognize people's names and I yeah. start to get to know people and I start to develop kind of you know, online relationships with people um, via Patreon. And um, likewise with the podcast, I would have like people who, you know, come tune in every single week to uh, and send in messages and send in support um, via that. And then, I, I mean, the way I make money from that, it's, it's a very, very small amount of money currently, but there are some ads on um, my podcast for various things, various, I, I don't even have control of it because it's all through, <laughs> done through Acast. Um, but yeah, those are kind of my, my main my main income streams um, and like various other bits and pieces going on yeah. at, at any one time, as, as, as a lot of people now in that kind of freelance economy have. Yeah. And I think this is where tech comes in because it's much easier than ever before to, to reach different audiences and to build your own niche community. Um, when you were signing up and opting to go with Patreon, did you look at any other offerings or was Patreon the easiest from a creator's point of view, but also then from a user's point of view, because it seems to be the one that most people run with? I think the reason I went with it, because I did consider others. And at the time, Patreon seemed, and I, I think I actually might have polled the people who follow me on Instagram. And I, Patreon seemed to be the one that most people were familiar with and mm. kind of understood the concept of you know, this is because there are still a lot of people who don't understand the concept of what Patreon is or what 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 people who uh, create content there can gain from being on that platform. So I think at the time, you know, there was a couple of options. I could have set up my own website and put in a, a kind of widget, I suppose, to charge people. Or I could have gone with Substack, which I actually have a really good relationship with the head of partnerships at Substack. And it was an option um, but at the time, I think Patreon was the one that most people f- were familiar with and they kind of understood. And that was the reason that was my my reason for going there, because I think each of the platforms that I kind of experimented with had their own flaws. There were, you know, there none of them are perfect and there's always, you know, improvements being made and stuff. And Patreon certainly has, you know, a long way to go to make it a completely flawless user experience. And I think 
from a creator's perspective and from a, a user's perspective, there's, there's a lot of work to be done there. But to be fair to Patreon, they are always polling the creators. So they will send out a survey and they'll say, you know, we're thinking of making these three improvements, which one would be the most important to you and which one would you like to see first? So they are very, very um, engaged with their creator community. And um, as a user experience, it is it is simple enough, which is that was the important thing for me, because, look, if I'm asking people to part with their money, like whether it's two, four or 10 euro a month, I want them to be able to do it really conveniently, really easily. And for there not to be, you know, 20 or 30 different click throughs before they get to to sign up. I wanted it to be as 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 simple as possible um, because it's it's, you know, it's very, very diff- difficult to grow on, on Patreon. It's very difficult to grow in, in, you know, for paid content in general, because while, you, you know, you are correct when you say that uh, people are more willing to pay for content now and people are starting to come around to the fact that if they want quality, if they want unbiased content, if they want, you know, proper spelling and grammar and, you know, whatever it might be that someone might be looking for in their content, they do have to pay for that. And it's, you know, because there's so much online for free, it's still, you know, it's still not, I suppose, a mainstream thing to do. So in order to get people to sign up, it's a massive, massive thing. And it's a massive step for someone to actually go, you know what, I really do want to support this person. I really do want to support their content. So I'm going to sign up. Um, And from my perspective, like I, I guess, because I'm aware as a, as a journalist on Patreon myself, because I'm aware of how difficult that is and how important it is to support a creator you like. I support, I'm I'm subscribed to so many different things. Aside from, you know, I'm subscribed to like New York Times and, and, and papers and stuff like that, but I'm subscribed to so many individuals on Patreon and on Substack because I do genuinely believe if it's, if, if, if it's good content and if it's content I'm going to want to read and if it's something I'm going to want to sit down with at the end of the day and actually properly engage with and properly take in in kind of a long form mm-hmm. that would be like the, I, f- I find that you know important um, and so I I basically practice what I preach is what I'm trying to say um, and I also run or part run I suppose I co-run a website called Rogue Collective which is another subscription platform and you know we make we create content there that is that really slow read that real long read sort of stuff and we release an issue every Sunday kind of like a like a magazine every Sunday and uh, we have a really really loyal strong subscriber base there so I think people are coming around to the idea of paying for content but we still have a long way to go. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned the magazine style there because that's just what I was thinking about. During the pandemic, during the first lockdown, I think it was, I subscribed to Dawn O'Porter on Patreon and she was writing pretty much a daily post on her Patreon. And every day, like we were essential workers, so I was coming into the office and every day for my 30-minute Lewis ride, I would just read her long rambling post, laugh out loud, have a little sob, whatever it was. But I thoroughly enjoyed it. And it's like back when I was a teenager and I used to pick up, you know, whether it was Top of the Pops magazine or whatever it was, just something that will give you that bit of entertainment. You know what you're going to get. It's almost like a comfort blanket. And the big thing for me about Patreon is there is no noise. You know that you're getting quality because the creator knows that you're paying for it. Yeah, yeah. And you're also getting, you know, you're getting quality, but you're also getting you're, you're able to curate your own content in a very, very specific way. And I mean, I know, you know, with the algorithms on the various different social media platforms, 
you know, you do kind of in a, in a sense, create your own atmosphere because you, the things you follow, obviously they feed back to you and you kind of end up in this echo chamber, but with Patreon or with Substack or any of those platforms, you are seeking out the people whose content you already follow and already enjoy. So you're essentially, I, the way I look at it is with my, my selection of people, I followed on, um, on, on Patreon as well and Laura Kennedy who writes for the Irish Times and, and the Style Magazine in the UK and I, like various other people and you know at the weekend or whatever when I have a bulk of kind of long pieces to get through I sit down and I in my head I kind of open a magazine and it's all of my favorite writers in the one place and it's something that you know the traditional magazine couldn't offer you in a sense because Yes, with, you know, traditional magazines, you are getting a selection of different, different writers and you're getting unbiased opinions and you're getting different types of content, different types of features um, in different genres with uh, Patreon or with Substack or any of those platforms where you are choosing who to follow. You are literally opening up a magazine and it's only the people that you really want to read. So it's it's such a joy and it's such an experience. And I think it does cut out all that kind of like, you know, six second videos or 10 seconds of this, 10 seconds of that, 10 seconds of the next thing. Because at some point in the week, I mean, I don't know about you, but I really need to slow my brain down and mm -hmm. I really need to just take something in and really think about something and really kind of take five minutes to myself and enjoy that slow read. And that is what I try to do with my Patreon. That's what we try to do at Rogue. And that's what I try to do even on the podcast as well. It's just to give people a bit of headspace and to cut out all the kind of, you know, clickbait and the, we only want your attention for 10 seconds. All we want you to do is read the headline and the first paragraph, et cetera, et cetera. I want people to, when they click in, read the headline, read the subhead, and then finish reading those eight or 900 words and get to the end and have taken something away. And even if they haven't taken something away, given themselves a bit of a mental break for five minutes. Yeah, no, I, I think it's so important, particularly at the moment when I keep saying it, I know, but there's so much noise out there. But I would love to hear from you. Do you subscribe to anyone on Patreon? Who should we be subscribing to? Uh, you can email techtalk at newstalk.com. Uh, if you want to hear more from Ashling, you can find her in multiple places. Uh, she has a website, ashlingkeenan.com, that links to all of the different outlets. Uh, she's the host of Private Education and is on Instagram too. Uh, Ashling, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining us here on Newstalk. Thanks a million for having me, Jess. Tech Talk on News Talk with VMware. Free your employees to work more securely from anywhere. Visit exertus.ie forward slash VMware. Welcome back to the final part of this week's Tech Talk. Jess Kelly with you here on News Talk. Now, you may know Dyson for their vacuum cleaners or maybe their hair drying and styling accessories. But earlier this week, Jake Dyson gave a bit of insight into the work the company is doing in terms of robotics. In this building, we're focused on robotics. There's a big future in robotics. It's saving people time, performing chores for people and improving people's daily lives. Well, I mean, I'm a parent. I've spent half my life cleaning up after my kids and it's, it's pretty tedious. We've been working for about 20 years now on floor care robots, which are puck format robots. And ours really do vacuum, by the way. But aside to that, we've also been doing a lot of research into robotics, which no one's aware of. So for the last 10 years, we've been sponsoring the Imperial College. So actually the work that's going on in these PhDs is ripe right now. We're after 700 engineers in robotics. That's what we're looking for, to, to work on the brain 
robot brain, essentially. We're you know, a, a small team of experts doing big things. And we can get there, but we need more people. Over here, uh, it's a very, very exciting rig. So what this arm is doing is it's able to map that chair in three dimensions. So this, this means I'll never, ever find crisps down the back of my sofa <laughs> again. Not. Ever. One of the very exciting things about robots, as with wearables, is they are the future of Dyson. Uh, we're looking forward to a 10-year lens and further. Um, we've always done that. We've always invested in the future with the digital motors, with batteries, and knowing what we want to invest in and drive towards. Yeah, so that's Jake Dyson talking through the vision that the company has and the work that the company is doing in terms of the creation of household robots. So that could be doing the dishes, picking up laundry. There's plenty of applications. You know, I just think of all the household chores I don't like doing. Uh, but would you be comfortable with a robot in your home? Would you trust one? Would you want one? Would you buy one? Uh, techtalk at newstalk.com. Now, a recent report conducted by Cyber Ireland and Cyber Skills has found that there is an opportunity for Ireland to become a global leader in cybersecurity and to grow our workforce to over 17,000 by 2030. Professor Donna O'Shea is the Chair of Cybersecurity at Monster Technological University and she joins me now. Donna, you're very welcome to Tech Talk. Uh, we've spoken on this programme quite a lot about cybersecurity, particularly in the wake of the HSE ransomware attack, which I think was the first time a lot of people sat up and paid attention to cybersecurity. From your vantage point, would you say that in general we've got a good understanding of cybersecurity in this country or is there still a way to go? Um, I think the attack on the HSE really demonstrated the vulnerability and complexities of our national critical infrastructure. Um, and it really demonstrated how the simple elegance of a phishing attack coupled with the ruthlessness of a cyber criminal could bring down an entire healthcare system. Um, and the reality is um, cybersecurity is one of the biggest global risks facing economies in today's world. Um, and, you know, Ireland and a lot of other economies across the world have a long way to go in improving our resilience against cybersecurity attacks. And to do this in the face of an increasingly complex and international, international threat landscape. Mm. And this is the reality. Yeah. You, you mentioned there that it was a phishing attack. And, you know, I've been talking about technology here on News Talk for the guts of 10 years now. And we've been warning against phishing attacks, whether it was a prince in some foreign land that wanted to give you a yeah. million euro or whether it was one of the more sophisticated ones. So someone purporting to be a colleague or a service provider looking to give you a refund or some work to do or whatever it may be. Did we get to the stage where we just ran with embracing digital and technology and digital services without fully understanding and appreciating the dangerous side of things. Like I always give the example that we teach our young kids how to cross the road by looking left, right and left again. They say, please and thank yeah. you. We didn't really do that in terms of how to behave in the online space in a safe way. Yeah, I, I certainly agree with that, Jess. Um, look, the reality is Ireland is a very sophisticated and has a really, really strong digital economy. Um, but it is also fact that we have done this um, by prioritizing this digital economy at the expense of advancing our cybersecurity readiness to the same level. Um, and we and because of this, cybercrime is actually having a disproportionately high impact on Irish organizations. Um, you know, cybercrime incidents 
to our, our Irish organisations is um, more than double, double the global average. And cybercrime costs and cleanup actually costs Irish organisations um, 50% more than the global average. Um, and we do need to actively address this imbalance between our digital economy and our cybersecurity readiness, because we need to maintain Ireland and we maintain our advantage as a safe place of doing business. And we also need to do this to establish trust needed for future inward investment. And this is especially important, um, Jess, because you know, Europe is considered the most trusted region in the world in terms of data security and privacy. And Ireland currently houses 30% of Europe's data. Um, mm -hmm. So we have to be seen as a leader in terms of cybersecurity preparedness and readiness, um, which we currently are not in reality. Yeah, we, we spoke to uh, Richard Brown on the programme, who's the director of the National Cybersecurity Centre, and we heard about the work that they do. But yeah. do we need to trickle it down a little bit more so that it's either at an organisational level or that it's at a consultancy level that engage with organisations? Like, is now the time for every business, regardless of a size, to have some form of budget allocated to cybersecurity? Absolutely, certainly. Um, and, you know, there are two dimensions to this. First of all, there's, there are the companies that are actively developing products and services, um, you know, towards cybersecurity solutions in Ireland, but they're also the consumers of these products and services. Okay, so we need to advance Irish economy um, looking at both sides of the coin. Um, and, you know, even if you look at the report that Cyber Ireland and Cyber Skills uh, recently published, you know, the cybersecurity industry in Ireland is really strong. Um, we have 489 firms operating in Ireland, and there's an even split um, between multinationals and SMEs. Um, and what this shows is that Ireland is a cybersecurity hotspot and a location of choice for FDI investment. And we also have a really strong indigenous innovation ecosystem for cybersecurity SMEs. Um, and we have a really strong sector. You know, we have 7,351 professionals working in the sector. Um, and most of these people actually work in multinationals, which is a result of the FDI investment, um, which basically can be attributed to about 70% of all employment in the sector. Um, we also the report, the cyber sector analysis report also demonstrates that we have a really productive workforce, which is something that I've always known, but now we've actually quantitative proof um, of the productivity of our workforce. And our GVA per employee is approximately 150K, which if you compare this to the UK is actually significantly higher. Mm. Um, and the report also showed where companies actually base their operations, um, and most of the operations are actually based in Dublin, but Cork and, and Galway actually have um, most of the firms per capita and are actually the locations of choice for FDI investment. Um, so these are the consumers. So these are the people who actually develop the products and services, you know what I mean? But we also need organizations to say, well, we're going to consume these products and services um, to improve the resilience of our business. But that's only one piece of the coin. You also need to look at, well, what are the skill level within my organization in terms of cybersecurity awareness and preparedness and resilience? And can I actually work with um, SFI research centers and, and researchers in actually improving my own um, or, or addressing my own cybersecurity challenges that, that my organization currently face? So there's there, there are different dimensions to it, if you understand mm. what I mean, Jess. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I suppose one of the things that I'm really interested in is 
what we can do as things stand today because look not every business at the moment will have money to invest and you know for new hires or expensive uh, consultancies and so on is this something that people can upskill to gain levels of understanding where they can sufficiently be the first line of defense for their organization or is it very much a job that you do need somebody who has the skills the qualification the experience yeah, I think, um, you know, cybersecurity skills is definitely the first line of defense. Your people and the investment in your people is definitely the first line of defense. Um, and, there are, and there has been significant investments in terms of cybersecurity education across Ireland over the past number of decades. We, are, we know actually for a fact that um, Dublin and Cork um, are key locations in terms of cybersecurity hotspots, right? But it's what are, what's really reassuring to know is that these locations are actually very well served in terms of cybersecurity program offerings. Um, and in Munster, there are actually 17 cybersecurity programs, two at level six, two at level seven, five at level eight, and eight at level nine. And Linster has 27 cybersecurity programs that are currently offered. And, and the cybersecurity professionals, which is a, a huge challenge for the industry, are extremely well paid with an average salary of 75,000. And if you compare this to actually engineers, the average engineer receives a salary of 57,000. Or if you're actually working in accountancy or finance, you know, the average salary is 55,000. Um, and this is really useful information because we need to motivate people to actually upskill and reskill into the industry. Um, you know, but there are problems um, with cybersecurity education and upskilling people. And this is something that cybersecurity companies, whether they're large multinationals or an SME, is actually telling me as an individual. And they're saying to us that, first of all, cybersecurity education is immature and dynamic. And what we mean by this is that there are loads of certification providers in cybersecurity education. And both learners and employees are confused about what certifications they need to work in the industry. Mm -hmm. And these certifications are also really expensive, which are creating artificial barriers to upskilling or reskilling in the industry. Um, and, you know, there are also a limited number of graduate opportunities in cybersecurity and graduate specialist recruitment is generally confined to the large multinationals so we don't have enough of graduate opportunities feeding into um, higher level roles over a period of time and if we look at different companies what we see is that SMEs right which are just small to medium sized companies they typically employ maybe one or two people dedicated to cybersecurity, um, but they want that person as well to do IT so they want an IT person with a bit of cybersecurity knowledge Whereas the multinationals want specialized staff on cybersecurity with even, you know, a more focused and specialized area of cybersecurity. Um, and another problem with cybersecurity education from a provider's point of view is that cybersecurity is constantly evolving. OK, and as providers of education, we are really struggling to keep up. Um, and this is mainly because we lack mechanisms to quickly incorporate material um, on emerging threats and new, skill, and new skills. Um, and it's for this reason that the initiative that I lead with MTU, with partners UL and TU Dublin, um, and the initiative is called Cyber Skills, is so important to Ireland um, in terms of addressing the critical skill shortage of cybersecurity professionals, because we're working collaboratively together, sharing material, resources, expertise, 
um, to basically address these key skills that the industry is currently facing. And if people want to find out more information or if they're interested in engaging, because, you know, we could have a company listening here now that wants to kind of tap into that network and avail of it, but also sort of hand back to it. Or there could be, uh, you know, parents of kids going to school or whatever. Where can people find more information and how can they engage to be part of the solution for this? Yeah, so I think cybersecurity, um, there is no one size fit all um, dimension to cybersecurity. Even if we're looking at cybersecurity awareness or education and public engagement for cybersecurity for citizens, it needs to be tailored for secondary school students. It needs to be tailored towards young adults or, you know, um, adults or or, or senior citizens. So there's no one size fits all, you know, um, solution to cybersecurity awareness or EPE. Um, But certainly we have received funding from the government. So through the SFI Discoverer programme, we have a dedicated programme on improving the cyber resilience of our citizens at all of these different levels. And more information on this is actually available on our Cyber Futures website. Um, But if organisations want to upskill or reskill their staff in cyber security, um, more information on this can actually be found in our cyberskills.ie website. Um, And I just want to maybe indicate that this is actually an initiative funded by the Higher Education Authority. Um, And maybe just to provide an example of how we have engaged with industry or how we're actually looking for industry to come to us so we can Mm. work together in addressing their skills needs. Um, Last year, we worked with MasterCard and MasterCard have, um, you know, 300 software developers working in their site in Dublin. Um, But these people are working in the area of software development. They were never given the skills to write code securely or to test code in a secure way. Um, And so we worked with MasterCard in developing a dedicated pathway to upskill and reskill their workforce in cybersecurity. Um, And we're basically innovating in cyberskills by working together. We're collaborating in developing joint pathways. Um, We're aligning it to an international standard. And we're also providing learners with real world cybersecurity skills. Um, And we're the only academic institution in Ireland that has a cyber range infrastructure to actually achieve this. Um, And I'm not sure if you know what a cyber range actually is, Jess, or have you heard? Go ahead and explain it to us, just Um, to be sure. (laughs) Yeah, but a, a cyber range is like a golf range, right? But for cybersecurity. Um, and we need this 